Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you are, and we thank you, Lord, that every step we take as we walk along with you, Lord, we find new strength day by day. We find grace sufficient for each moment. And Lord, we find a promise more, more and more sure. Uh, Lord, that that promise of, of eternal life that lays uh, before us, that, um, Lord, can't be stolen away from us. And uh, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask that by your spirit, you would lead us into all truth as you've promised to do this morning that you would be our perfect interpreter of your word. And uh, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us as you desire to be revealed and find our hearts and minds a fertile place for the seed of your word to be sown. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 27 this morning. Um. You know, when I was uh, kind of progressing along in high school and, and there was that time that kind of came, I knew I wanted to go uh, to college, uh, to a university, and uh, so there was kind of a point in time where I realized, okay, I need to start doing some research and thinking about where I want to go to school and all that kind of stuff, and um, and there was a uh, a a kind of a burning desire within me that uh, kind of manifested itself as I was searching for schools, and all of a sudden I found that most of the schools I was looking at were in, like, the Northwest. And I grew up in Indiana, and I had never been west of the Mississippi um, up to that point. And uh, so um, the, the West was sort of the great unknown that I, I just had this hunger to go experience, and, um, and I ended up, uh, ended up going to school for, for a couple years at Montana State uh, in Bozeman. But, um, but the thing, I, I actually ended up transferring back to Indiana because I found that my time of exploring was interfering with my education, actually. So, <laughs> um, my, so anyways, my, uh, uh, I, my last semester at Montana State, I took the minimum number of credits so that I could take the maximum number of hours fly fishing. And that's so, kind of realized I had a problem and uh, transferred back to, uh, to Indiana where I finished up my education there. But, um, but it, my, one of the things that I loved is I, as we drove out to, to visit Montana State for the first time, I, I was just fascinated. Like my eyes were, I wasn't driving, uh, my dad was driving, and so my eyes were just glued out the window uh, the whole time, just fascinated with the horizon and just fascinated with, with all the new terrain that, that I was encountering along the way. And, and I just have this constant question in my head of what's beyond the horizon? Like everybody sees what I'm seeing right now as they travel along the interstate, but I want to know what's over the top. I want to know what's around the bend. I want to know what's on this, this gravel road that just takes off off the interstate. You know, there's some of those as you drive along that it's like it's just a right-hand turn off the interstate. Uh, onto a gravel road, and, and I just always wondered, where does this go? Uh, and that was where I always wanted, I just wanted to get off. Can we just, you know, get off here and uh, just drive back wherever this goes? And I always have that hunger to know what lays just beyond. Because the mountains, they sort of tease you, right, with 
they give you a glimpse of something that's there, but you don't really get to see what's actually there and experience it unless you step into there and explore it. Unless you walk into there yourself, you, it, it just merely sort of teases you from a distance. Well, it, this is kind of similar to what it would have been like if you, uh, so we ha- as we talk about the, the design and the construction of, of the tabernacle and the courtyard, because the tabernacles, we're going to find out as we get into our text this morning, we've been talking about the tabernacle, uh, uh, which was a, a tent, and it was divided into two chambers. There was, as you entered into the tabernacle, you would first encounter the holy place, and then you would encounter, well, you wouldn't because you wouldn't be allowed in. Uh, in fact, you wouldn't even be allowed into the holy place unless you were a priest uh, that was serving. But um, the most holy place was the, the, most, uh, the, 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 the most limited access place in the tabernacle that were, was only accessed by uh, certain priests at certain times of the year and and there were very specific instructions for them if they were to be called to enter into service in the most holy place. And so uh, the, the tabernacle itself was divided into those two chambers, the holy place and the most holy place. Outside of, and in the most holy places where a priest would annually give a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of all the people of Israel. Um, and so the priest would go before God. First, the priest would have to give atonement for their own sins so that they uh, would be worthy of, of entering into the most holy place to, uh, on behalf of the rest of Israel and to give atonement for their sins. And so, um, so that's what happened in the most holy place. But as, as you move out from the most holy place, um, there are more people who are able to access these areas. So the holy place would be accessed by more priests than just the one that was allowed to enter into the most holy place. And then you get outside of the tabernacle into the courtyard, and in the courtyard there was an altar. And we're going to read about some of that this morning. And around all the courtyard was a screen or a a fence. And it wasn't really uh, a fence that was designed to necessarily keep people out or keep people in, um, but but as a markation for... When you pass through um, the gates of, of this uh, divider, um, you are stepping into the place where heaven meets earth. You are stepping into the place where God dwells among men. And so if you were outside of that, this screen, which would have been close to eight feet high, um, it wouldn't, wouldn't have allowed you to see what's going on inside of there. Uh, you would have been on the outside sort of peeking over the top, and you'd see hints of what's going on in there. You'd see the, the, the top of the, the tabernacle tent um, where you knew, would know that there's a, there are priests who are going into there to represent the people. Uh, you would see some smoke rising um, from the altar that would have laid inside of there, but you wouldn't have seen the altar and seen what was going on. You just would have seen the signs that there's something going on in there. And there would have been this, uh, uh, you, so you could be near it and have a sense that you're near to where the action is, but until you entered through the gates yourself, you would not have been a part of the experience of, of uh, what was going on at the altar and within the courtyard. 
it reminds me actually of, uh, of what it's like to be, um, to be an unbeliever in Christ. Before coming to Christ, it's like being on the outside of that screen, sort of catching glimpses of something incredible that God is doing as you're surrounded by other believers by be- or people who believe in Christ. You see glimpses of forgiveness. You see glimpses of, of the love for Christ. You see glimpses of, of grace. You see glimpses of hope and, uh, and freedom of the soul that comes through that forgiveness in, that comes through Christ. You catch glimpses of that, yet you don't understand it and you don't experience it because you're not yet, you haven't stepped into um, that relationship with Christ yourself. And so while you might have a close proximity to it, while you might have a sort of uh, a view of it, you haven't yet stepped into it and experienced what forgiveness is like for yourself, what that joy of Christ is like for yourself, what that love of Christ being born in you is like for yourself. And so in, as we go through the Psalms, you see that constant uh, or, or often this invitation to come, to come into the house of God, to worship, to come into the house of God, to give thanks. And before we, so before we dive into our text this morning, I wanted to read a couple of Psalms where this, uh, where this invitation is given. Psalm 100, and I'd ask you to turn there with me this morning. And Psalm, uh, fairly easy to find, if you put your thumb right in the middle of your Bible, you're probably going to be pretty close. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The idea of entering his gates, um, the, and we'll, you see this through the Psalms, there's this imagery of the tabernacle or the temple and the courtyard. And so um, what we have here in Exodus is the tabernacle tent and the, the courtyard, all of it's portable. Later on, um, it, it, it be, there's a, a temple built that is a permanent structure, but uh, the, the, the imagery is the same, uh, and, and Hebrews tells us that these are earthly pictures of heavenly realities. And so, um, in, in Psalm, what we often see is this imagery of of the, the gate going into the courtyard and the courtyard and the altar and the, the, the most holy place. And we see that used in, in the praise and worship of God in, through the Psalms. And here we have in verse 4, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. To enter the courtyard of the tabernacle um, 
it, this was a very, very important part of, of Jewish life for, for those who, who uh, feared God. It, it was a very important place. The tabernacle itself is a place where God dwells among His people. Stepping into the gates of the courtyard that surrounded it would have been stepping into that very place where God meets with His people. And God deals with sin. And so that the courtyard where the altar was that, that the general public could access, um, it represented some, some very important realities to them. One, it's the place where sin burdens were laid down and forgiveness could be received. Two, uh, it's a place where one would give thanks for all that Yahweh had done for them. Um, it was a place of celebration and worship. It was a place of drawing near to their Creator, to the faithful one who loves them. It was a place of really receiving a type of strength and reassurance um, by just being in the, drawing near to the presence of God, a type of strength and reassurance that, that helps to sort of propel them through uh, the rest of life. It was a, repla- uh, a place of um, being filled up with good things from God. Um, you can probably uh, have some picture of this if you don't know what that, if you can't relate to that experience. Think of, uh, think of perhaps maybe like a holiday gathering, right? This is uh, maybe a very earthly example of this, but when you gather with family, um, that there is a type of filling up that you get, a type of encouragement uh, within you that you gain from gathering with those people that you love and know that love you. Well, it's, it's that only much more when it comes to gathering and fellowshipping with God. And so the, this was a very special place for the Israelites here. And the fence around, remember, allowed uh, one to maybe see little glimpses of it, but to be a part of that, they had to enter through the gates to participate themselves. And so it is in our relationship with God that until we step into that by faith, we are sort of on the outside looking in. Uh, I, I won't, we won't go through it today, uh, but I, I would ask you to maybe write down Psalm 84, Another, another just uh, awesome psalm that, that talks about um, entering the house of God. How lovely is your dwelling place. And um, one of the things that's in Psalm 84 is it says, Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So the, the psalmist recognizes, remember this is an open air deal out here uh, with the tabernacle in the courtyard. And the psalmist says, even the sparrows and the swallows, they make nests and find a home in your dwelling. And they're accepted there. They're welcome there. And the idea is that God welcomes those who come to him seeking him with a pure heart. 
And so, so as we turn to Exodus chapter 27 this morning and, and look at our, our passage, we want to keep in mind that, uh, that this is the place where some very special things happened in the lives of the people of Israel. And, uh, and those translate in, into uh, where we are today, and we'll talk about that. So Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings uh, at its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the, next, the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar where it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be. Now the altar, um, the, the design here of the altar essentially is a, a design that would allow airflow because there's going to be a fire burning there. And so it's going to need airflow. Uh, in, and if you look at some of the way that the design is talked about with some of the things that are going to go along with it, it even mentions uh, a pot for ashes and, and some, some different tools and things. It, it is, um, I guess in a crude sense, it is just, it's like a giant grill. And, and it would be, uh, as we'll see here in a little bit, this was something that got a, it was in constant use. And this was where animals would be sacrificed and a burnt offering would be given. And so you, there's going to be, uh, I mean, you know what your grill looks like when you're just like flipping burgers on it for a while before it's been cleaned, right? And it gets gunk built up on it. Okay, the, the altar is in constant use where bloody sacrifices are brought to the altar and, and then this fire underneath um, for the burnt offering and so you can imagine what, what the altar would begin to look like as, as this is happening all day, every day. Um, that the altar was not, as we, you know, in my Bible here, it gives this little image here of this really beautiful um, bronze structure here. And it would have started out that way for sure. But you can imagine that the altar eventually, and probably not, it probably didn't take too long. The altar began to look kind of disgusting. And, and that's okay. Because the altar was the place where people were reminded of their sin and where they were reminded that only God can forgive sin. And that death was required for there to be a sacrifice to atone for their sin. It's a lot like we look at the cross today. 
the cross, it's not meant to be a necessarily like this beautiful object in the sense of how we might imagine something ornate and beautifully designed. It is crude and disgusting and yet beautiful all at the same time because this is the place where sinners find forgiveness and Christ was sacrificed for the sins of those sinners. This altar would have been like that. And uh, in fact, the altar is really a, uh, a type of, of picture of w- what Christ becomes for us. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Remember, as we go through this, these are earthly pictures of heavenly realities. And these things point forward to the, the most glorious sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Verse 9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court shall have, uh, shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Twenty pillars, uh, it's twenty pillars, and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits. And there are three pillars and three bases. Uh, on the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits. And there are three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. Uh, in other words, when you enter the gate of the courtyard, it would be designed in such a way that you recognize you're entering into a special place. Um, it shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, and hangings of fine twined linen, and bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. The, the, so we have the, the, the courtyard, and so you would be, imagine here as you, your experience would be that you, you would notice uh, the tabernacle, you would notice the courtyard, um, because this would be a very central place uh, the center of the life of Israel. And, and for really a, a picture of God being the center of all things. So uh, you have the, the, the courtyard, the screen that goes around the courtyard, and as you entered through the gates, you would see right away there's something special about this place by, by the way that the curtains of the gate um, are designed. And you would step into the gates and between the gates and the holy place um, where God resides um, is the altar. Uh, um, now, don't miss that. So, in order to go from the gate, the entrance of God's house, 
um, to get to that most holy place where God manifests His presence among His people, you would have to go around the altar. Now, it wouldn't be that simple, but just to give you an idea of how you would come in and the progression of what you would see and experience, the altar laid bet- was laid between the, ga- the gate where you would enter and the most holy place where God's dwelling was. Now, there were several types of sacrifices that would be given at the altar, um, and we won't go into all of those, but I want to give you an idea of what, what that experience would have been like. So if you had come to the gates, you're seeking God, you're seeking His forgiveness, um, you, you're aware that you are a sinner and that you are in need of God's forgiveness. And you want to walk in the blessing of God. You want to walk in a way that is pleasing to Him. And so you come to the gates, and with you, you bring a sacrifice. Now we're going to look at Leviticus to see uh, what that experience would be like for us if we, if we were among those worshipers who were coming to, um, to, to seek God's forgiveness for sin. So turn to Leviticus chapter 4 with me. So that's going to be to the right there of Exodus. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27. Now there, were, um, there are some, some varying nuances because there, are, uh, uh, there, there is here in Leviticus 4 sort of like uh, you know, if you're a priest who's, who's atoning for sin, you do this. If you're a leader, you do this. If you're uh, one of the common Israelites, you do this. But they're all generally pretty similar in terms of how this takes place. So we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat. So this is uh, speaking to, I don't know if you've had this experience. Actually, that's facetious. I do know you've had this experience. You have been made aware of your own sin at times throughout your life. I've been made aware of my own sin many times throughout my life. Right? That, that is something I am well aware of. That is something these folks would have been well aware of, that they are corrupt sinners and that they intentionally and unintentionally disobey God's commands. Uh, that is, that there are times where they knowingly step out of the bounds, and there are other times where just driven along by the natural lusts of the flesh without making a necessarily a conscious decision, step outside of God's commandments. Guilty either way. Um, guilty before God. And so here says when that happens that a person would be a, become aware of their sin before God and realize their guilt here's what they do so he shall bring for his offering a goat a female without blemish that without blemish is one of those things that we see regardless of what the sacrifice is that's being brought um, because there were actually um, it, it was recognized by the Lord that some people are not going to be able to afford a goat 
where some people are not going to be able to afford a lamb. And so there was provision made so that regardless of how wealthy you were or how poor you were, there was an offering you could bring for sin. And so access to God was not closed off merely because you didn't have possession, physical possession. Okay, so, um, but the idea that it was spotless without blemish uh, was very important, and that plays very important into Christ, the coming of Christ, the pointing forward to Christ because He is the one who is without sin, who becomes our perfect sacrifice. Okay, so, um, with female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. Verse 29, And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar and all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall uh, burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. All right, so let's, just to kind of s- summarize this here, so uh, a worshiper, you, your family, you would come to the gates of, of the courtyard with a sacrifice that was without blemish. You would bring the best of the best. Now, this would have been an animal that you perhaps raised on your own uh, or that you purchase. Either way, it costs you something. It costs you something to bring this sacrifice. Uh, it, is not, it is not just a, 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 a sort of a, um, just something that's casual and efficient for you to do. This is the, it costs you something to come before God to give sacrifice for sin. And so they would bring this, you would bring the sacrifice to the gate. And, and then in bringing this, this sacrifice, you would place your hand upon the head of the animal before killing it. The placing the hand on, on the head of the animal is, is a recognition that this animal becomes your substitute. It becomes the sacrifice for you so that you may live and be forgiven. And so this animal sort of takes your place in dying. And so you lay your hand on the head of this animal and then you kill this animal. And then what happens after that is the priest steps in and mediates for you. The priest steps in and is the go-between to bring the sacrifice then to God for you. You didn't bring the sacrifice to the altar yourself. The priest would be the one who would do that. And so it was necessary for you not only to bring a sacrifice, but to have someone who can then stand between you and God to make this sacrifice and for it to be received by by the Lord. Leviticus chapter 6 reminds us that the fire was, was to be going in the altar all the time. This was one of the jobs of the priest to keep that fire going 
all the time because there was always another sacrifice that needed to be made. The sins of the people were never fully atoned for. There was always more sin, always more sacrifice. It was over and over and over and over all day. It was, uh, maybe this is a sad commentary, but um, I've noticed the last few times that I go to Costco, it doesn't matter when you go, everybody needs more stuff. It's just more and more and more all day long, open to close, flow of people needing more stuff. That was like the altar. More, more sacrifice and more sacrifice and more sacrifice and it's never satisfied. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God gave Christ, who his, his Son, one and only Son, to become our sacrifice for our sin, though He knew no sin Himself. He was perfect. He was without sin. He was tempted like we are, Scriptures tell us. He, he went through all the temptations and the struggles of life that we go through. He can relate to that. He knows it because He's endured it. And yet he remained without sin. And he did that so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is, so that Christ, who is righteous, takes on our sin and carries the weight of that sin on the cross to bear the wrath of God against our sins so that the righteousness of Christ may be given to us. So as we stand before God, we don't enter the gates now as uh, having received Christ's forgiveness. We don't enter the gates as a sinner needing to give another sacrifice. We enter as one who is called righteous. And so, so picture this. So we have the imagery. Remember, these are, this is an earthly picture of heavenly realities. So in Christ, if you have been forgiven of Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. So when you, figuratively, you, if you were to be, live in this day and age back here in, in Exodus and Leviticus, only have been coming as, as uh, having in, in the sort of new covenant, that is that Christ has given His life for you, you arrive at the, at the courtyard, the gate is right there, you have no sacrifice to bring because you have already received a perfect sacrifice that covers all your sin past, present, and future, there is no more sacrifice needed for you. And so not only do you enter the gate without a sacrifice, and you no longer stop at the altar because that sacrifice has already taken place for you in Christ, but now you go past the altar, and where priests, only priests were allowed to enter, that place of deep fellowship with God, where God manifests His presence, you can enter in freely without restriction in fact the scriptures say we have confidence now in entering the most holy place god has torn that division that curtain in two and opened up access for everyone to come to him through christ this is an astounding truth that the new testament brings to us so god gave his son jesus christ as a sacrifice for our sin 
And Jesus became the altar, the very altar and sacrifice all in one for us. But even more than that, he became altar, the place of sacrifice. He became the sacrifice himself, and he became the priest who mediates between us and the Father who would judge us. So as we enter that picture in the courtyard there where you enter in, you bring a sacrifice to the altar, and the priest there mediates between you and God, Jesus Christ does this all in and of himself. In Matthew chapter 26, as he gathers with his disciples um, for what we call the Last Supper, the last Passover meal that he takes with his disciples, he says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat this is my body and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins i tell you i will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom he says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins Jesus was telling his disciples that it is his blood that would be poured out for them. He was telling them he would become their sacrifice. And though they didn't quite understand it yet, um, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, Paul says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So while here in Exodus, there were many mediators. There were many priests who would mediate based on uh, their, uh, when, it, when they were scheduled to serve. And... Um, and so there would be many mediators, and they would mediate over and over and over and over and over and over again. But Scripture says now in Christ, there is one mediator. There is only one mediator who is uh, able to mediate between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He is our sacrifice and He is our mediator to the Father. And now the question arises for us is we have this picture of entering the gates of the courtyard. That is, a, that is a, an action. It is one thing to know that, the, that, that God's doing something over there behind this barrier and that that's going on. It's another thing even to say, hey, uh, I'm near it. It is another thing to step inside and partake of what God is doing inside. And so the very first thing for us to recognize is when God makes us aware of our sin, and I'm confident that each and every one of us has become aware of our wrongdoing before God and before other people, that when we become aware of that, that we recognize there is action to be taken. That action that God calls us to is to take a step of faith in Christ. 
Christ has become our sacrifice and he offers us forgiveness. But if we sit kind of on the side and we talk about Jesus and we talk about all these truths, but we never take a step of faith of saying, Lord, forgive me. I turn away from the life that I've been living and I now point it towards following you. If we never take that step, just like the folks on the outside looking in, um, we, we never get to experience what that is like to be forgiven, to have the hope of eternal life, uh, to, to experience that joy and the love that Christ plants within us and begins to grow within us. And the invitation is for everyone to come. Timothy says that he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is, God desires everyone to recognize their sin and to, to, to repent of it, to seek forgiveness, to confess it to him and ask for his forgiveness and, and believe that Jesus Christ is your sacrifice for sin. And so have you done that? Have you entered through those gates? Have you accepted Christ as your sacrifice, your mediator, the one who has become your sacrifice, the one through whom you may find forgiveness of sins, the one through whom you find eternal life? God tells us that all who come repentant and humble seeking his forgiveness and seeking life in Christ will not be turned away. In fact, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The, the idea is here of being poor in spirit and those who mourn. It's an awareness of your neediness, of your lack. It's an awareness of how deeply you need God and how how deeply broken you are in your own sin. When we come before God with that recognition that I am a sinner, God, and I do not deserve anything good from you, but I, I plead, for, plead with you for your forgiveness, that God receives us and offers us forgiveness through Christ. That invitation is to everyone who would come. If you haven't, received Christ by faith, today is the day to do that. Today is the day to say, Lord, I need you. And I want to follow you. I want your forgiveness. I want to I know what it's like to have this relationship with you, to walk with you all of my days. And if you have received Christ, I, wanna, I want to um, just remind you of an import, something very, very important. Um, this, this week, I've I've had a couple of different conversations with folks, and the context was, um, you know, I've been following Christ for a long time. I believe in Him. I've, I've turned away from, from my sin, and I'm, I'm, I'm making every effort to now walk in Christ and trust in Him. I hope I get into heaven. And I want to share this with you. Scripture does not say if you place your faith in Christ, you may now hope that maybe he'll let you in. And so I want you all to hear this um, because I, I know many of you have wrestled with this idea that now after receiving Christ, you hope that's enough. 
And I want to assure you, He is enough. Hebrews even says that when Christ gave Himself a sacrifice for us, He stands as our priest before God to mediate for us. And it says when He gave that sacrifice of Himself, He sat down at the right hand of God. And that might not mean much to us when we hear that, but recognize this. Hebrews also says that the priests that served here in in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and through the Old Testament, they never got to sit down. There were no snack breaks. There were no, like, you can sit down, you're done, kick kick your feet up, take it easy. Their job was never done. There was always more sacrifice that needed to be given. There was always more sin that needed atoned for. There was never never a sacrifice that was perfect enough to cover all sin for all people for all time. But Christ brought His sacrifice of Himself and it was enough for all people for all time who would turn to Him by faith. And so if you have repented of your sin before God, And if you have received Christ by faith as your Savior, you are forgiven. Your sin yesterday, your sin today, and your sin tomorrow, all taken care of at the cross. Now we can have a discussion about, okay, am I free to do whatever I want? Uh, That's another message, okay? Just recognize you come to the cross, you're asking His forgiveness, which implies you're not looking for the easiest way out here where, Lord, what's my least, the least thing I can do? You're recognizing you're a sinner and you're hopeless and apart from the grace and forgiveness of God, you are, you are ultimately going to be destroyed here. You are going to receive uh, um, what is due to you, which is horrifying. And so we come to God by faith in that. And here's, I want you to hear these things uh, John, in John 8.36, what Jesus says, he says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son of God has set you free from sin and death, then you are free from it. There's no hoping that you will be free. You are factually free. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That is, as you stand before God, there, is, there, there, are, there are no points on, on your resume here where God's going to go, whoa, you can't enter here. In Christ, there is no condemnation. You stand before God righteous and pure because of Christ. Now, you might not feel like that, But factually, as we stand before God, His Word says there's no condemnation. Christ's sacrifice was enough. 1 John chapter 5, Apostle John writes to believers and he says this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So there are, there are two places we can be with God. Without the life and without Christ. Or with the life and with Christ. There's no in-between where could, we could sort of swing either way depending on how our life goes. We are either in Christ and 
and in life or without Christ and without the life of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may guess or hope, but that you may know. And I want to close. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to finish up here. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and this is, I just, man, this is like a glorious passage. Uh, Just so, it's like a Thanksgiving dinner of, of what it means to be a believer in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I don't know if you're getting the picture here, But the Apostle Paul is saying salvation comes from God. He has brought salvation to you. And this is a fixed and certain thing that God has given to those who believe in Him. But it it really gets driven even more home as we go along here. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The last two verses there of that passage, one, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit as belonging to God. And then the other part of that, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the down payment that shows that God is going to follow through with this promise to save us. Your sin was taken care of on the cross. The promise of eternal life is given to you through the cross. And if if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you ought to walk in confidence, not arrogance, but confidence as a sinner who has been saved permanently by the grace of God through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. So Satan will try to tell you that maybe you might not make it. He will try to discourage you. He will try to suggest that Christ's sacrifice is not enough. Listen to God. He spelled it out clearly that Christ is enough for you and for me forever. 
Lord, we thank you for, for your sacrifice given for us at the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that every sinner can find through you. We thank you for this promise of eternal life that is certain for us who have trusted in you. We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit, Lord, who now resides with us to prove that, Lord, what you have started, you will complete. And, Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to be more firmly convinced of these truths every day, that we may proclaim them just as confidently to others who need the forgiveness of God. So, Lord, we, we thank you and, and ask for your help in living worthy of this calling that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for, for believers, whenever we see, catch a glimpse of the cross, it should be, uh, it should be like the days of old when, when the folks would draw near to the gates of the courtyard where there would be this welling up of, of this sort of fullness of, of joy that this is where we go to find forgiveness. This is where we go to be filled up by God. This is where we go to experience the deep, deep love of God. The deep, deep love of God is found at the cross. And we can walk in it every single day because he will never leave us nor forsake us. So when we read the Psalms about entering his courts and entering the temple, uh, we live in that place where God resides with us each and every day. And if you've not called out to him uh, for that, enter through those gates today. He calls you, he appeals to you to turn your life to him. And then you'll know what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 84 when he says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. May Lord bless and keep you and help you walk in that truth today. Um, wanna, let me close us in prayer, and then, and then we're going to kind of transition here, albeit maybe a little awkwardly. Um, we're going to transition into our, our um, annual meeting here. So I want to thank you for those of you who are visiting with us. Thank you for being with us, and all of you are welcome to stay for the meeting if you like. Um, but let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we thank you once again that as we gather here, we are reminded of your sacrifice for us, and we are reminded that your sacrifice was enough for us. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would just help us to find a confidence, um, Lord, in that truth day by day, that we walk not with fear of, of being shut out of heaven, but Lord, with that truth and hope that we will be received with love and welcomed um, because we have been adopted into your family, belonging to you now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.